Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts globally. And honestly, it is all because of my truly incredible guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game and who are absolutely willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. Now, these are not people who hold back. Their goal for being on this show is to help you achieve the essence of peak performance. And today I welcome the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, which was recently listed by Forbes as one of the top 10 yeah, 10 most important business books of 2021. And customers today expect the brands that they deal with to deliver an increasing, an increasingly outstanding and seamless digital experience. And honestly, we don't have time to get, grab much attention. People can hit that keyboard and that out button quicker than you can even imagine. So those who understand this are thriving those that don't are becoming increasingly increasingly irrelevant. I can't talk today. It's Labor Day. I shouldn't be talking today, right, Howard? So Howard joins right. us today. We should be at the beach. <laughs> we should. We will soon. So Howard joins us today to help companies understand their customers. Howard's welcome. Thank you for being with me here on Labor Day. And oh, thank my you pleasure. for sending Thanks me your book. Me. Oh, my pleasure. We've tried to... I think this is the second or third time we've had to reschedule, so today I was determined we're going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so happy we could do it. So thank you for the book. I've got it in front of me, and I want you to tell people, well, who you are and why you wrote this book, and then I've got questions. You ought to see. I've got sticky notes all over this thing. (laughs) All right. Well, that's what I love to see when people have my book, and it's highlighted and stuff circled, and they've got post-it notes. That's when I know it's being used. That's awesome. Um, well, you know, I've had an amazing uh, opportunity and privilege over the last 25 years or so to get to work with um, many Fortune 1000 brands on their adaptation, their transformation for a digital world. And, of course, that world has become so much more digital during that 25-year period, and frankly, perhaps more so than ever in the last couple of years. And so I've had a, a ringside seat, and, and maybe I shouldn't say a ringside seat, a, I've been in the ring, <laughs> um, working with brands ranging from General Motors to General Electric to Avis to Airbus to Transamerica, JPMorgan Chase, Toys R Us, Mattel, and on and on and on, on this, this question of how do, we, how do we succeed, how do we adapt our businesses for a world and a customer whose behavior is, has changed very much and continues to change. And uh, so what, what is the book? The book is really what I've learned in 25 years about what works because I've had the opportunity to, prov- to participate in some really amazingly successful digital initiatives and digital transformation programs. And I've been a part of some that were not successful at all. And, you know, there's a quote I love from Bill Gates where he says, success is a lousy teacher. 
And, uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of good teachers, shall we say. So, um, you know, by seeing what's worked and what's not worked, I've been able to sort of put together over the years, this is how I approach digital transformation. This is what I've seen works. So for companies, for a, a brand right now that's looking at the world and, and realizing that the world is moving perhaps more quickly than they are and that there's some element of risk about whether they're going to be the kind of player in the future that they may have been in the past, this is a roadmap to how to assess where you are, how to figure out where you want to go, and how to drive large organizations to make that kind of transformation. And I find your, your book fascinating for so many reasons. Like, I'm a techie nerd. You wouldn't mm. think it today because I cannot seem to make the seamless transition from Windows 10 to 11. As I was telling you a minute ago, I feel like I'm back in college failing algebra. You've got to find a 10-year-old to help you, that's all. I'm telling you. I mean, I've been beating my head against Wall's desk. I'm about, you know, biting the cat's tail for a week now. It's like, really? I just want to go back to what I know. I don't want to learn yeah. anything, and I'm all whiny about it. And I suspect that my whiny is a, what we're, we're seeing a lot of people going, what the heck changed? What happened? You know, this, is, this has always worked. Why is it no longer working? I mean, now we've got AI, artificial intelligence. We have NFTs, which I'll be honest with you, I don't understand at all. I mean, there's so many things just coming at us that we're like, what the heck? Are you seeing that as well? Well, yes, I think that um, plenty of senior executives are constantly trying to stay up to speed. It can feel like a full-time job to keep uh, knowledgeable about this rapidly changing not just you know, technology of digital, but it's a wide array of technologies from those that relate to data to those that relate to security, those that relate to commerce, uh, not to mention those that are less even about technology and more about, if you will, the sociology of digital. You know, the way that, I mean, my, none of my kids are interested in Facebook. They're all on Snapchat. They're all on TikTok. You know, the way that they're engaging in the digital world has the marked differences from the way that the prior generation did. And of course, if you're in business and trying to serve uh, for example, a diverse demographic with a wide range of ages, uh, you've got to be knowledgeable about how their different, uh, the different um, kind of uh, segments are using digital. So, yes, uh, it can feel like a full-time job to stay up to date, and um, I think there's plenty of people who have that sense of, uh, that have a sense of overwhelm. I'm seeing it a lot. You know, people are saying, I can't keep up. And, you know, they're not saying that as a, I quit, I can't keep up. It's just more of a woe is me kind of attitude. And they're going to keep up. They're going to get caught up. I mean, you know they are given who they are, but still, sometimes we just want to whine. <laughs> sometimes well, we're like, and you know, geez, and you know, another, slow it yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, everything will be okay, Denise. Um, the, the, um, you know, th that manifests in another way, too, that, that affects the work that, that I do often, which is that within organizations that are constantly trying to create new capabilities and, and better experiences for this digital generation that has a very, very high standards, it can also create change fatigue within an organization. So the feelings you have about having to move from Windows 10 to 11, people within an organization, oh, no, they've just changed our CRM system, and now we have a whole new process for processing customer requests, and we now have to interact with customers on chat, and we have different social media ways we have to interact, and so on and so on. And, and as things, the, the pace of change uh, accelerates and organizations are having to try to desperately try to keep up to meet the changing needs of their customers, their employees can, can start to feel, um, you know, it's, it's, exha it's exhausting. Uh, and, um, 
you know, I think that there's those people in the world and I think I'm one of them. And I think you may be one of them too, I'm, but we're, you know, we're in the minority it, it, people who really love change, who are excited by every new thing and always want to try it. And that's one type of personality, but there's a lot of people who are like, you know, uh, I was fine with the way it was before. You know, I didn't mind going to the bank and now I have to deal with this new method of scanning my checks with uh, an iPhone or whatever. And, um, you know, I was okay calling the call center and now I'm supposed to interact with people on chatbots or what have you. And, and, you know, this change, even if it's progress in one sense, doesn't feel like progress because once you've learned how to do something one way, there's some pain of having to figure out something new. And so I think both on the, the customer side and on the employee side, this, uh, this change fatigue is something that uh, everybody's experiencing. And we have to be thinking about how to overcome it if we want to push businesses forward in the digital world. Oh, I agree. My listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, but why? Look, I have older clients that simp- they like to go to the bank. Let's use that as an example. You know, that's kind of like family. You walk in, hey, Billy, how you doing? You know, they know your your children, your grandchildren. Yeah. They don't want to have to do things on their iPhone. So I'm wondering if there isn't an easier way to transition people, like leaving some of the old ways there. And, you know, letting us choose our poison, you know, pick our poison, if you will. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It's like their way or no way, and that's kind of frustrating. Well, I mean, you still can go to the bank, and you can still, you know, deposit a check. There may be less windows open, less tellers, that sort of thing. Many organizations still allow you to engage in, in some traditional ways. But there's no question there are times when they start to say, you know, we, we want to push everybody to, to some new way. I'll give you an example. My, my daughter, Jessica, is starting college. She just, she just started college. She's a freshman at uh, SUNY Binghamton. And uh, we parents got a bunch of presentations from different, uh, the people who ran different parts of the university, like security and whatnot. So we got an, um, a presentation from the people who run the, the dining services across campus, talk about how that works and healthy eating and blah, blah, blah. But one of the things they were saying was that this fall, the, they've eliminated cash on campus. So, you know, if you have the meal plan, of course, you can swipe your card. But if you show up without the meal plan, you know, you can pay by PayPal, you can pay by Venmo, you can pay by, you know, Apple Pay and whatnot and a credit card, but they're no longer accepting cash. And um, someone asked, you know, why did they decide to stop accepting cash? And they said, well, you know, um, people just weren't using it very much. And, you know, it's expensive, right? You got to issue the drawers to every cashier. The cash has to be counted. It has to be kept secure so it doesn't get stolen. So there's a whole bunch of costs in a business to have people dealing with cash. And if the, if the need, the, the, the demand from customers declines to a certain point, then you say, you know, for the small minority that are still doing it, it's just not worth it. It's just not make sense as a business. And that's the point at which you sort of pull the plug and say, hey, listen, you know, we're not going to offer that method anymore. So I think, of course, that's an that's, that's organization that targets, that targets young people, that targets college students. You know, I don't think Macy's is going to stop accepting cash this year. But, you know, in five years, in 10 years, there may be a point. And, and, and I'll tell you one other example of that. My daughter and I, uh, before COVID, uh, took a trip to Asia, and one of the places we stopped was Beijing. And so we were walking around one of the sort of high-end shopping districts in Beijing, and we wanted to get a snack, and we walked into one little bakery. We wanted to buy something. Not only did they not take cash, but they wouldn't take our credit cards either. There was only one thing they would take, Alipay. That was the only way to pay. And it's, you know, kind of specific to, to Asia. There, it's huge. I don't use Alipay. You know, it's not big here in the U.S., and we went to another place, another place, and it seemed like all the little cafes and restaurants in the area, they'd only accept Alipay. 
So we were left, we were out in the cold because we couldn't get a snack. <laughs> um, finally, I'm like, we got to sign up for Alipay if we're going to be wandering around Asia for a couple of weeks. But, and so, yeah, there are those times when they just say, this is the new way. And if you want to, if you want a cookie, <laughs> you got to, you got to pay digitally and you've got to join the, the revolution. You know, and I never looked at it like this. And I'm glad you're explaining this because I didn't understand. I have not understood the whole, you know, not paying with cash thing. I don't ever carry cash, honestly. I found $3 in my wallet not too long ago, and I have no idea how long it's been in there. No clue. Three $1 bills. It, it could have been 10 years in that wallet. Like It's like finding a subway it. token now. <laughs> really? Well, I don't know. You I live in do... New York. So in New York, oh, years okay. ago... You know, there were subway tokens. You had to buy them. They were these particular like, coins kind of, you know, they were these tokens for the subway, you know. But it's been decades since you could use a subway token. You have to use what they call a metro card, you know. Um, but anyway, oh, I'm just saying, like, if you open a drawer somewhere and you find some subway token from 20, 20 years ago, it's like a collector's item. Okay. I'm, well, I'm wondering if my little $1 bills will be while well, I spent them. I gave them to a friend of mine because she had picked up some groceries for me. And I, I wrote her a check, believe it or not, and I gave her my last $3 because I wanted it gone. I just didn't even want to deal with those $3. One of the things that – and let's, let's get a little sideways here. Um, one of the things that you talk about, not sideways but in another direction, is achieving customer love. And you say that that's the single most important criteria for business success. And we're kind of talking about that a bit and that there's a love continuum, and we can measure brand's level of customer love using a simple question. What is that question? Yeah, so um, let me unpack a little bit about what you said, and then I'll answer your question about the question about the question. Yeah, so, I mean, the emotional connection that our customers have to us as a business, whatever business you're in, is one of the most valuable assets, as you say. And so a lot of what I talk about in the book is how to measure that and then how to, how to promote it. How do you take customers who you know, may, may do business with you because you're convenient, you're nearby, they need something, you have it, they buy it, whatnot. But how do you turn those into customers that are really like loyal raving fans, the way that Apple does, the way that Harley Davidson does, the way that some people love Ben and Jerry's or some people love Whole Foods, et cetera. And these brands are often doing something different from what other brands are doing. So we, we, we go into that in detail in the book. But to answer your question, um, we, we, we often study and measure what the emotional relationship between consumers are with a particular brand, like a company will hire us. And part of what we're studying is how do your customers really feel about you and also how they feel about your competitors, because it gives you a sense of where you stand. And we ask a whole bunch of different questions to try to get to that. But we found that there is one question that correlates well with the ultimate answer. It's kind of like the shortcut question. It's maybe not quite as accurate as asking a whole battery of questions, but it's super quick and easy. And the question is simply, how would you feel if this brand were gone, what would be your emotional feeling? If someone told you that Chevron was gone, they were out of business, no more Chevron service stations, there's no more Chevron. Versus how would you feel if someone told you that about Disney? How would you feel if someone told you that about Apple? How would you feel if someone told you that about Citibank or Starbucks or Macy's or Amazon? You know, and I'm guessing even as I rattle off these different brands, people have a very different reaction ranging from those brands that they truly love a kind of an existential uh, depression, like a feeling like Harley Davidson is gone. There's no more. I mean, I I don't know how to like, you know, I mean, life will go on, but like, this is a major loss. This is something to mourn. Uh, This is, uh, you know, do I want to live in a world 
where a Harley Davidson can go out of business kind of feeling. Um, and there are definitely brands that people feel that level. It's an emotional connection to. Uh, and then, you know, scrolling down from there, there's, man, that's, that's really disappointing. You know, like when Sports Authority went out of business, you know, I, I didn't have the existential depression about it, but I was like, really, man, I'm really bummed about that. You know, the, I really like that store. I like the people who work there. It was a part of my life. And next time I need some sporting goods for my kids, I'm going to miss the fact that there was a sports authority 10 minutes from my house and all that, even if I can buy the tough stuff on Amazon, you know. And then down from there, there are those companies that – and so we, we, we label in our, in our system the, the love brands at the top. Then the second level is what we call uh, resonant brands, brands that people really do care about at some level. Uh, maybe they like the brands instead of love them, you know. And then the next level down is what we call a relevant brand. These are brands that, uh, you know, they're a part of your life. If someone said to me that Chevron was out of business, I would be like, oh, okay, well, that's in more important information. I need to know that because uh, I usually go to the Chevron station on my way into the city. So I guess the next time I need gas, I'll have to turn right on Bayberry instead of left and go to the Exxon. So, okay, mental note. You know, it's not going to emotionally tear me up, but it is, it is relevant to me. I have to do something with that information. And then, and then you have levels below that we call irrelevant and non-existent. Either you say... Uh, Oh, you know, if someone said to me, Lululemon was out of business, I'd be like, okay, I mean, doesn't change my life, you know. Uh, maybe there's other people for whom it would, but not for me. Um, and then non-existent is like if someone said to me, Radio Shack was out of business. I'd be like, I, I didn't even realize they were still in business, you know. Or I thought they I were never, out of business. I, I never heard of. Are they still yeah, around? I, <laughs> I think there's a few left, or at least oh, there were before goodness. COVID. But there you go, exactly. <laughs> if it's either a brand you never heard of or a brand that you thought, was already gone, you know, like, I think there's still, I keep, I keep hearing that there's one blockbuster left. I think they're in Alaska, if I'm not mistaken, or is it Seattle, someplace like that. Um, so these are brands that effectively are irrelevant. And then the last stage down would be non-existent. So, so being able to know where you are at any given point in time is very helpful. And you're not going to be there the same with everybody. Of course, there are some people who hate Disney, you know, and there are some people who love brands that not that many other people love. But, uh, of course, you want to know for different segments, different types of customers, different ages, different geographies, uh, different, you know, depending on what kind of brand you are, you know, different interests or if you're a B2B brand, uh, different types of customers. And, uh, and how many are in each category? Because there's always a curve. No one's loved by everybody. But obviously, if you thought about that, that curve or that bar graph for Apple, there's a huge number of people who love them. There's also a large number of people who find them extremely resonant. And there's obviously some people at the lower end of the curve. You know, if you did the same thing for Samsung, you'd still find some people who love them, but a lot less, you, you know, et cetera. And then obviously if you did it for, uh, you know, BlackBerry at this point in time, you'd find that for a lot of people, the brand is either irrelevant or non-existent. Again, I didn't know they were in business. I saw something <laughs> the other day that they were selling a new BlackBerry, and I went, what? I still have my original BlackBerry in my closet, you know, it's a little boat anchor. It's not going to do anything ever. <laughs> Another collector's to item. Start with. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you because you have, I mean, you talk a lot about high love, and we just kind of covered that. But is it? I'm big on customer service, and not necessarily the customer service. And you just mentioned um, Samsung. I hate LG. Hate, 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 hate LG. I will never, ever. Am I being a little too emphatic wow. here? I'll never buy another one of their products ever again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. It's the customer experience and the customer service experience 
they are, oh, my God, bad, really hmm. bad. So, I, I mean, if, in, if you a, get that reputation. Send them a copy of my book, please. I don't think any of them know how to read. If I really oh, now, oh my goodness, Denise, listen to you. <laughs> what, Denise, what have they done to you? I want to hear the story about how they have so angered you. Well, my LG refrigerator, which was just at five years old, they're expensive. It's a door and door. It's double door. It's, you know, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing to look at. And all of a sudden, the refrigerator compartment would not cool. I was not mm-hmm. getting ice. The freezer was working kind of okay. They came last week for the fourth time. At this point, I think I've got a lemon. But I honestly, and I had people, and they will only deal with one repair company, and these people are truly incompetent. They really are. They have maybe three people that work with the company, and they've started to rotate them out of my house because one of them, I said, don't ever come back. I just don't. But anyway, this last time, oh, yeah, it's fixed, it's fixed. It's not. I do have ice, That's, but they came in. Well, let me let me back up just a bit. First of all, they were saying, no, 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 you have warranty. You're going to have to pay this, this, and it was going to be thousands of dollars. At that point, you buy a new refrigerator, right? I said, no. So I talked to LG again, and I mentioned a class action lawsuit. All of a sudden, Howard, it was a miracle. I was back in warranty. It was a miracle. So they sent this same incompetent company again who kind of wandered around. He looked at it a little bit. He, you know, flashed some little lights at it. He said, okay, we're going to order some parts. We'll be back in three days. Seven days later, I had all of the parts, and they essentially gutted my refrigerator. I guess they figured if they wanted me to go away, they would just replace everything, the compressor, the ice maker, the, the motherboard, everything. They just replaced pretty much everything except the fan, but they didn't top up the Freon. So mm. back they came. I'm, I'm not happy. Would you be? Oh, and you know, how much do you think they've spent trying to make you happy? And that's just it. Had they done it right the first time or even the second time, but four times, I mean, finally I got on Facebook and went into some repair you know, groups, and they're all saying it's the compressor, it's not the fan. It's it. And they were all right. Every one of them was right. Mm-hmm. But the the repair people were not right. And it's still not yeah. right. I mean, it's still not done. So come tomorrow, I'll be back on the phone with LG. But I'll tell you what, they and this particular company have a terrible, terrible reputation, and they've earned it. Yeah, and that's kind well, of where know, I wanted to go with this. How how do you earn such a cruddy reputation and not do something about it? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and you know, one it really helps make a key point that we talk about in the book, which is many people, many companies hesitate to invest too much in creating a great customer experience because margin, right? They're concerned and they say, well, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, let's say you're a retailer. Well, you know, we'd love to do everything for the customer. We'd love to have never have a line and, you know, provide every wonderful experience for the customer. But our shareholders expect us to deliver a certain margin. And, and so if we, if we do too much for the customer, you know, I, we're never going to really make any money. This stuff's too expensive. So we, we can only do so much. But look at your example. I, I, I have to assume that however much money you paid for that refrigerator when you bought it, and don't, don't forget, you probably bought, I'm assuming you bought it from a retailer like Best Buy or somebody, so LG probably only got you know, 60% of that money at most. Right, right. And they've probably spent way more than that trying to make you happy 
and yet they've done the exact opposite. And so, you know, they've probably wasted your time, not to mention frustrated you with promises that were not kept. And, you know, and now here you are, you've become, as we would say in a, you know, a, um, a, uh, you know, a detractor, right? You are here on the radio. Well, I'm an anti-ambassador. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm so anti that. This right. has been you're, going on, Howard, since the middle of right. June. Right. I have you're, not you're, had a refrigerator since June. Right. Your, your net promoter score is deeply negative, and here you are oh, yeah. uh, anti, anti-promoting them on the radio. So, you know, uh, but, you know, I think that um, it makes the point that it would have been way less expensive for them to have had a good customer experience, not more expensive way less expensive. So you ask, you know, how, how do companies wind up with such a bad customer experience? And, and obviously the flip side of that is, well, you know, how could they have a good customer experience? I, th- I think the first is measurement. Do, do you really, do you, I mean, I, I'm assuming that there's nobody in a conference room at LG where they created a diagram and they mapped out, as one does when one creates business process, what is the flowchart of how the repair experience should be? And that flowchart shows, well, first we come and we say we're going to repair it, but then we don't. And then we come back, and we, but we put in the wrong part, and they're drawing this out. And then I think the next thing that should happen is we should repair the refrigerator, but make sure not to put the Freon in. Make sure the repair people know no Freon so that we get to come back later and put the Freon in. I mean, this, this is, not, is surely not an intentional mapped out customer experience. This is obviously a... You know, a, 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 a I was going to say an anomaly, but it might not be an anomaly. It might be common, but it's not intentional. Nobody would intentionally create this unless they were like, uh, you know, like that guy in the producers who tries to create a Broadway musical that will flop. You know, you ever see that show? You know, he's like, how do I create a musical that will no. flop so I can defraud my investors? Okay, well, some people <laughs> know it. Anyway, so what, what do you do? Well, the first thing is, you know, do the executives at LG, do they actually know what's going on? Do they know how many repair requests come in for each model? How many are repaired the first time, the second time, the third time? Are they measuring that promoter score or some other method of measuring customer satisfaction? Do they actually know how satisfied their customers are or dissatisfied? And do they know the, the root cause reasons? In my experience, very, very often, the insight and understanding people running the organizations like this have only a kind of an anecdotal understanding. They've heard some stories, probably. They probably have some awareness. They probably also get it filtered. They may think, oh, well, we've got some very unreasonable customers, you know. Um, they, you know, and I don't know. Maybe in this case, they're very well aware. But very often, the first problem is they haven't clearly mapped out what's actually going on, the current state customer experience. We do a lot of, you know, my consulting company, we wound up doing a lot of that. What's actually happening when people walk into your store? What's actually happening when people come to your hotel? What are the positive emotional experiences that people have? What do people love about it? And where are we creating points of pain? Because those points of pain that we create, very often unintentionally, disproportionately impact the perception of the brand. I'm guessing that despite your characterization of LG as as horrific, and I'm not disagreeing with you at all, that that refrigerator has successfully cooled food for you. It has successfully kept other things frozen for you. You called them for help, and some people did show up at your house. So actually, you know, LG did probably a whole bunch of things correctly. But yet your impression of them is, is almost entirely negative. It reminds me of a, a story I tell in the book, uh, which is years and years ago, my mother, who thankfully is still fine and alive, but at the time she was quite ill. She was in the hospital. She was actually in a coma. And this is probably 20 years ago. And I was sitting by her bedside and everyone was worried about whether she would survive. 
And this doctor comes in. It's the middle of the night, actually. It was like 2, 3 in the morning. You know, it's one of those things. You're sitting by your relative's bedside, hoping they're going to get well, talking to them and while they're, you know, out. And the doctor comes in. And just to show you how long ago it was, he's looking at the clipboard on the edge of her bed. Today, it would all be on a tablet, right, with all of her labs, you know, and where she's looking at these things you learn about when you have an ill relative, the, the crit and the, the peep on the ventilator and all these, you know, you all of a sudden you become educated about all these things that they're measuring, that measure the liver function and the kidney function. So he looks at all these things and a lot of the numbers, you know, were not that good. And it was sort of a, 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 a bleak situation. Again, thankfully she's fine now. But, um, and he looks at the numbers and I said to him, oh, God, you know, doctor, you know, what, what do you think? And he looks and just shook his head for a second. And finally he says to me, he says, you know, with everything that has to go right, in the human body, it's amazing any of us live for even five minutes. And, you know, it, it can be like that with customer experience, too. You know, y you can't just get 80% of it right. You have to get, there's a little bit of margin for error, but you have to get like 99.5% of it right. Or you wind up with too many points of pain and a customer experience that's not competitive and a highly dissatisfied customer who winds up on the radio telling everybody never to buy your product. <laughs> Um, well, so it's, it's a high, it's a high bar. It is. And you know, you actually pointed something out to me without meaning to, I think it's actually not LG. I'm really angry with, but I am to mm. some degree. Their huge failure was that they have this one company mm -hmm. and this company is incompetent. There is mm. no question that they the are incompetent. Yeah. Yes. And they are the big problem for me and for people on Facebook. They're like, Oh, it's not A and E was it? Yes, it was. They're a terrible company. And here's where I'm going to go back to blaming LG. They won't move away from this company. It's the only mm -hmm. one they offer. Mm -hmm. So that's their big boo-boo right there. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some executives, and, and I've never worked with LG. I don't know anyone there. So I'm just speculating based purely on my experience with other, other brands. But there might be people at LG who say, oh, customers are really satisfied with our products. We've tested it. We found out they love our refrigerators. They hate our repair, but that's not us. That's somebody else. So, you know, LG they love. But here you've made the point quite clearly that the customer doesn't care. The customer doesn't care the reasons. The customer doesn't care that, you know, sales was good, but service is bad. That's not my job. That's not my department. You know, when you're running a brand overall, you have to look at that complete customer journey and be able to make sure that you're delivering a great experience. You know, I mean, another example right now, is I don't know if you follow what happens happening in the luxury watch market, but especially during COVID, there's been tremendous demand for luxury watches like Rolexes. And so the demand massively exceeds the supply. And Rolex is getting a lot of hate from people online because of things that are happening when you go to a Rolex store to buy a Rolex. And sometimes they want a kickback or sometimes they make you buy 10 other watches in order to buy a Rolex because they have so few Rolexes. And so why this is relevant is because these Rolex stores, these stores with giant Rolex, um, you know, uh, uh, logos on their walls, they're not owned by Rolex. They're Rolex authorized dealers. You could become a jewelry store in any town. And if you were, you know, could persuade Rolex to stock their products, you'd become a Rolex dealer, have a big Rolex logo and sell Rolex watches. But you're not really truly being controlled by Rolex. And so it's difficult for a company like that to control everything that happens at their point of distribution, at their point of sales, at least in the case of Rolex. And many other brands that are sold, you know, through third parties or brands that have franchisees and things like that. And so, um, but the, so the, that's the whole point of a brand, right? It's not about a company. Many brands are made up of dozens or even hundreds of companies. It's a total experience. 
And so that's why, you know, the first step is to say, well, how are people perceiving our brand? And what is that experience of the brand from the first moment they hear of the brand? And this is why one thing we talk about in the book is customer journey mapping, which needs to look at all the stages of the customer life cycle from their initial awareness of the brand to how they find out more about it when there's a possibility it's relevant to them. You know, I don't really care about the bakery in my town until it's time for me to get a birthday cake for my daughter. And then I care because now it's relevant all of a sudden. I have a reason to need the bakery. And then the process of, you know, selecting a product, negotiating a price, paying for it. I mean, you don't negotiate much on the cake, but if you're buying a car, you certainly do. Uh, you know, and, and going through the steps all the way through the consumption experience, the service experience, and, you know, there may be payment experiences, again, depending on what kind of product and service, and making sure you really understand what's going on the whole way through. And I got to tell you, you know, 99 times out of 100, there's going to be problems. There's going to be points of pain. There's going to be places where you're disappointing your customers. You're confusing them. You're frustrating them. Not necessarily everywhere, but there's going to be those, uh, you know, uh, warts in that customer journey. And the best thing you can do as a business is be enthusiastic about learning where all of those places are. Because, you know, it's kind of like when you have a little, like, you kind of have a pain in your leg or you have a you know, recurring headache, but you kind of partly don't go to the doctor because you kind of don't want to know if it's something really bad. You know, that's like that natural human psychology. There is this potential, or I think companies sometimes, they don't, they're not enthusiastic about a detailed analysis because sometimes they would like to remain a little bit, it's a natural human tendency to say, you'd rather believe everything's great than learn about everything that's terrible. Uh, it can be a little depressing, and we have to give these presentations all the time to brands where we walk through all the problems that they have in the customer journey. But what I always, I always start those presentations with you know, the positive idea that, look, most businesses have the same goal, which is they want to grow, they want more revenue, and they want you know, customers to love them more, they want to be more profitable, they want to be able to charge more, and these are, these are objectives of almost every business. If, if I came in and studied the customer journey of a business and I came back to them and said, you guys are awesome. This customer journey is perfect. There's no problems in it. Your customers, they really couldn't be made any happier. You are already at the top. Well, you know, how are you going to get more money from these people? How are you going to compete? How are you going to be even more differentiated in the marketplace? You're already a 10 out of 10. But if, if you're already a company doing, you know, a billion dollars of revenue a year at 12% margin or whatever, and I'm able to look and see, or anyone is, hey, look, there's all these problems. You're still at a certain level of success despite those problems. But what would it mean if we could start to tackle these problems, if we could start to remove these points of pain? We create a better experience, we're more competitive, and we may actually save money for reasons like the one that you just described. If the product has all kinds of problems and we have to spend a ton of money on customer service, or if our customers are constantly complaining on Twitter and we have to spend a lot of money trying to respond to them or trying to do ad campaigns to sort of combat the negative perception people have from online customer reviews, these are all opportunities to not only potentially spend less in other areas, but as I say, you know, create more customer loyalty and actually improve the sort of organic nature of your brand's level of preference from customers, their level of willingness to pay more, reduction in you know, price sensitivity, interested in seeing your products in, in, in adjacent categories and all that other good stuff. And see, that makes sense to me. I mean, if you're going to put up a product, whatever it's going to be, and you have created expectations for your customer, you need to follow through. And unless, 
their expectations are woefully insane, and I don't think mine are. I would like my refrigerator to work. I don't think that's you know too much to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently they do, but but the thing is, there are so many different ways. I think that from what you're saying and what I'm reading in your book, that people can map these journeys and figure. Look with LG. I'm gonna go back to them one more time. They know there's a problem. There's a class action suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know there's a problem with this particular refrigerator, but they still keep defending it. So anyway, we've got about 23 minutes, and what I would like you to do, if you don't mind, I know you've got five steps, and you had told me that there's a proven transformation process that brands can use. LG, are you listening? Last time, I promise. Can you use to improve, I'm really mad, to improve their fulfillment of the love formulas that we talked about earlier in five parts. So can you go one, two, three, four, five? Do we have time? Absolutely. Sure, okay. sure. And, and, you know, but I want to pick up on something that you just said, and I want to pull it out and, and draw a big circle around it. Because you, you made a little parenthetical comment where you said that, you know, you don't think it's unreasonable that your refrigerator actually works, um, but apparently LG does, right? And... That is a great example of one of the greatest dangers about not delivering that customer experience at a very high level. Because you've just, and I see this all the time because we do a lot of customer research, you've just drawn a conclusion. You have kind of anthropomorphized LG, and you've decided that LG doesn't care about you. In fact, and they don't care whether you have a product that works or not. And you've concluded that based on your experience. I'm going to guess that that is not true. Now, I could be wrong, but most of the time it's not true. If we were interviewing the CEO of LG, if we were talking to the chief marketing officer, if we were talking to the person who's in charge of product or manufacturing, I'd be very surprised if their attitude was, yeah, I don't really give a damn whether these refrigerators work or not, as long as we can move them in retail. Um, But you have quite reasonably drawn a conclusion about how the brand feels about you based on your experience. And we see this all the time, for example, with websites. People go to a website and it doesn't work. They try to submit something, they get an error message, whatever else. And the feeling that we see is that this brand apparently doesn't give a damn because if they did, there wouldn't be these problems. Well, very often there may be other reasons. And I'm not saying that's an excuse. It's not an excuse. On the contrary, brands need to understand that no matter what their intention no matter how much they care about the customer, no matter how much they want the customer to have a great experience and a great product, when these types of things occur, not only do they create a negative experience for the customer, but the customer implies the, the, a, an intent, a negative intent by the brand. And that is perhaps the most damaging part of all. You know, if you've ever had somebody do something, oh, I don't know, let's say you have a landscaper and the landscaper is supposed to show up and they just keep not showing up, Right. Well, you know, if the landscaper's calling you and telling you how sorry they are and they have a genuine reason and they, you know, somebody's ill or their equipment's not working or whatever, you know, eventually you may still get rid of the landscaper, but you're probably going to be a lot more sympathetic versus the landscaper just doesn't show up and you don't know why. And you assume it's just because they don't care about meeting their commitment to you. And so that, that, and I'm saying all this because of how core we're talking about the emotional connection. I mean, if you have a friend, who doesn't show up to meet you for lunch, blows you off, you know, even though you're scheduled to get together. If you feel that that friend just didn't care 
then that's going to be very harmful to your friendship. On the other hand, if you feel that that friend, you know, maybe got into a car accident on the way and there's a good reason, then you may be just concerned about them and not feel negatively towards them. Anyway, point is that brands need to understand this. I see this all the time in research. This is the consequence of these bad customer experiences. It's not just the customer rationally says, oh, this was a bad experience. I maybe shouldn't buy LG in the future because I need to factor this into, you know, good, good products but bad service. But I need to rec- maybe that's not even true. Maybe it's bad products and bad service, but whatever it is. But I need to actually, but I, but I actually hate them because you sound like you really hate them. And what's one reason people hate somebody? Well, because they feel some negative emotion back. The brand, does, the brand seems to hate me, so I hate them back. And anyway, yeah, they're not getting is, a Christmas card from me. Right, exactly. And so, um, so that, that's the key thing I would want people to, not, to, to really make sure they understand is that these negative emotional, negative parts of the journey can cause the customer to draw conclusions about how the brand actually feels about them. Conclusions which may or may not be true. They're probably false, but which are extremely harmful. Um, so, so you asked about the five steps. So five steps laid out in the book. I'll just list what they are, and then I'll kind of give you a, a little overview of what each one is. Does that sound good? Perfect. Okay, cool. So, uh, and just as a reminder, what are these five steps for? There, if you're sitting there going, man, you know, I would love to have a brand which can stand toe-to-toe with any competitor in the marketplace, including the Amazons or Ubers or, you know, whatever industry you're in, the, the purely digital brands, and be able to compete for today's, you know, digitally empowered customer. But holy cow, you know, I'm this brand from, you know, you know maybe with a long, wonderful heritage, you know, but a brand that was built pre-digital that maybe still is investing, has a lot of technology, sure, but still isn't delivering the level of digital elegance that today's customers expect and sometimes have the feeling that how will we ever get there? Um, you know, there's that old, old uh, joke from, uh, is it the Smothers Brothers? I can't remember where they stop at a gas station and they say, you know, how do I get to such and such location? And the, the gas station says, well, you know, you could take the interstate around. Oh, no, no, that won't work. Well, you could take the turnpike south. And, oh, no, you can't take it that way. Cause, and then finally the guy says, come to think of it, you can't get there from here. You know, that's an old joke. And, um, and sometimes it feels that way when you're this big company and you're trying to get to this level of digital elegance. So these are the five steps. The first is understand your customer, not only who they are, but what, what are their needs? What are their priorities? What are their fears, hopes, dreams? And what is the experience, as we talked about earlier, that they're having today with your brand, your product, or with competitors' brands or products? Because, of course, to the degree that there's points of pain or dissatisfaction with competitors' brands or products, those are opportunities for you to differentiate. So the whole, you know, we're talking here about the topic of digital transformation. And one of the things, and a lot of, this is a very hot buzzword, a lot of businesses, boards of directors are very safe. You know, we, we need digital transformation. And they're probably right. I tend to agree. But transformation is just a, a, a longer word for change. It just says, basically, we need to change and change to be more digital, presumably. But, you know, you could do a lot of things. You can change a business in many different directions. And that doesn't necessarily mean your business is going to get better just because you change something. If I have a restaurant and I paint it black or I, I change the menu and I take this stuff off the menu and put different stuff on the menu, it doesn't automatically mean my business is going to get better. The change has to be aimed has to be aimed in the way that's going to drive improvements in the business. So how do you aim a digital transformation? The customer, because the customer is your target and the customer is continuously changing. So we need to make sure we understand 
where is this customer that you're targeting today? And you may have multiple different customer segments. And then fine, we need to understand each of them. Where are they today? What are their needs? And how well are we meeting those needs? And, and where might be we letting that customer down? So that's the foundation, I think, of any transformation. Uh, and, and also, what is it we want from this customer? Sometimes it seems obvious, but it's still important to map it out. We want them, we want customers to convert and sign up for our product or buy our service or whatever it is. We want them to stay, to come back. We want them to buy supplies. We don't want them to call our call center. We want them to chat with us instead. We want them to post positive things on social media. We don't want them to host around radio show and tell everybody how terrible we are. You know? Like, what are, the, what are the things we want from this customer? And that's the first step, because that's how we're going to aim the transformation. Then the second step is to map the journey. What is the experience that if we give that experience to the customer, we will get more emotional connection to that customer? That customer will come to move up that scale from perhaps irrelevance to relevance to resonance to ultimately, ideally, a customer that loves us. A customer that would say, you know what? I love LG. Their products are fantastic. Every time I want a new product for my home, I see if LG has one. If they sell a dishwasher, I buy it. If they sell a microwave, I buy it. And you know what? If something ever happens wrong with my LG appliance, you know, I know those guys are awesome and I know they're going to come fix it because I, I know nothing's perfect and sometimes things break, but these guys are right on top of it. And so honestly, I would never go with another company because LG is just so awesome. That's ideally where LG wants their customers. So what is the experience? I'm going to guess, Denise, that they had an opportunity to do that with you. They sold you a refrigerator. And if they'd have given you a different kind of customer journey than they did, maybe a very different one, then you might have moved in the direction of what I just described to become an advocate instead of a detractor for LG. Absolutely. Yeah. So then the question is, but what, what could they have done? And so doing the research to figure out and create a vision to say, how should the sales experience have been different? How should the delivery experience have been different? How should the product itself have been different? How should the instructions that you get when you get the refrigerator to make sure you know how to use all of its cool features been different? How should the warranty have been different? How should the warranty service have been different? And so on and so on and so on. You know, I have a, I have a GE oven, for example, and every three, four months, I get a little message from my oven that says, we have some new features that we would like to download to your oven. Can we download them right now? And I say yes. And then a little progress bar goes for, I don't know, 20 seconds. And then it says, hey, we've just added this new cooking mode to your, to your oven, right? I already paid these guys. I have no subscription. You know, I don't pay them a monthly fee for this oven. I just bought the oven. And they're continuously sending me ways that this oven can be made better. They sent me a Thanksgiving mode um, for my turkey right before Thanksgiving a couple years ago. And it allowed me to use my phone to see what my turkey looked like while it was cooking in the oven and to adjust the temperature if I needed to, which turned out to be really useful to me because I had a party to go to in the morning on Thanksgiving Day while the turkey was cooking. And I could literally see if the turkey was getting too dark, I could, you know, change the, change the temperature or adjust the oven settings while I was off at my party in the next town over. So these guys are thinking about me and they're thinking about what my turkey needs might be. And they're improving the product they sent me at no cost. And I think that's an example of something that's quite the opposite of your experience with LG. So what is that journey? And by the way, you could map out all kinds of things that might not matter at all to some of your customers. <coughs> Maybe some customers don't care about turkey mode, or there's many other things that companies do. My wife, for example, really hates our health insurance company. Now, I'm not going to say who they are. 
but they are constantly denying claims that they're supposed to pay. And then you've got to get on the phone with them and fight with people who don't seem to be with it, you know, to explain to them, I know this is supposed to be covered and eventually you can get them to pay, but it requires a tremendous amount of energy. So she gets a call from this insurance company a couple of months ago. Hi, I'm a nurse and I work for the insurance company. And at no cost to you, I'm just calling to ask you how your health is. And I'd like to talk to you about if there's anything we can do to help you think through how you can improve your health, nutrition, how you sleep. This is just a proactive call out of the blue, essentially inquiring about my wife's health and asking if there's anything they can do to make her healthier. I'm sure somebody thought that, that was going to improve customer satisfaction. My wife thought it was the stupidest thing she ever saw. These are the same people who won't pay her claims. And so, you know, the idea that now they're spending money uh, having nurses call to see how, how healthy she is, she just thought was ridiculous and she pretty much hung up on this poor nurse. But um, so you got to make sure that you're mapping out a journey that will align with the needs and expectations of your customer, not just what somebody in a, in a conference room somewhere thinks customers might like. And then you can test things as well as you start to conceive of different ideas, test them with customers uh, through more with customer research of various sorts and see what kind of reaction you get. So that's the second step is to map the journey. Uh, the third step is to, is to build it because usually once you've mapped out that journey, there's various components that need to be built and created. What those components might be, sometimes it's an app, sometimes it's a chatbot, sometimes it's a website, sometimes it's a different approach to uh, how you outsource your refrigerator repair. You know, maybe they need a different company, maybe they need a different way of interacting with that company, maybe they need to train that company better, maybe they need to provide that company better diagnostic tools. I mean, I don't know, you've, you've said that the company's incompetent. If the company is truly totally incompetent, then sounds like they should get rid of them. But, you know, companies actually can't be incompetent. Only people can be incompetent. Sounds like you got some incompetent people at your house. But also, is competence an inherent quality of a human being? Or is it just a t temporary state? There's a lot of things that I'm incompetent about. If I had to like change the brakes on my car, I am totally incompetent to do that. But I could probably be taught. So if these people who are going to people's homes to try to repair their refrigerators don't have the appropriate level of competence, Maybe there's a program we can put in place to change that. Again, whether that's training or a, an app that they use when they're in your home that they plug into the refrigerator that diagnoses it. I mean, I don't know. But that process of figuring out what are the components that we need to build so that that person can come there once, fix the refrigerator, it's fixed, you're done, and you're happy, and they don't have to spend the cost of coming back again and again. So that's the third step. And, of course, those three steps are a lot because if you understand the customer, and you can map where you need to go with the journey and then break it into pieces and step-by-step step build it out, that's the basic components of a transformation. And, of course, that kind of transformation can take years depending on how ambitious your journey vision is and how different it is from where you already are. Um, and that's why we have the other two layers. So we have these three steps that kind of happen in serial. I mean, it's not really totally in serial, but first you really want to understand, then you're going to map the journey, then you're going to be building it out. Now, of course, you continuously want to be going back and revalidating that you understand, and you're probably continuously updating the journey. But while you're doing those three steps, there's two more that kind of span the whole duration. The next one, which is the fourth step, is to, to, to optimize the present. In other words, when we do a lot of customer, we have a big workshop facility in Manhattan, and we'll do a lot of customer journey visioning workshops and create ambitious visions of where a bank or a car rental company or a, you know, a motorcycle manufacturer, whatever it may be, needs to transform their journey. And we know that it's going to be a multi-year process because it's an ambitious vision. But while that's going on, we need to be looking for the small ways that we may be able to continuously improve 
the experience we're offering to our customers and make improvements ideally you know, every month, every quarter. Because while you're working on the big transformational change, you may discover that on the checkout page, people are confused by this explanation or this button, or there's a couple of extra steps that shouldn't be there in the financing process. Or you know, the, the, the method by which you schedule a repair appointment is confusing to people and it can be improved. And so while you're working on the big transformational vision, there's a whole other work stream that should be happening, identifying those things that don't require big transformation in order to make small improvements. Because the reality is that small improvements are sometimes also easy to make. And if you can make, and it's like anything you might want to do, you want to map it out. What's the level of effort and what's the potential impact? But for those things that are even a moderate impact, but a low level of effort or a high impact and a moderate level of effort, you potentially want to be queuing those things up as well. Because if you make improvements every single month after six quarters or eight quarters of doing that, while you still may be working on your broader transformation, you may have already seen a substantial transformation in your business in terms of how the customer feels about it. Um, and then the last category that also goes throughout the whole duration of this transformation is to lead the change. And, you know, of course, leadership is not the thing you do last. Leadership is the thing you do first. We talk about it last in the book because I always find it's helpful to first think about what has to get done and then ask the question, well, what kind of leadership is necessary to be able to accomplish this? But leading organizations through transformational times is much more challenging than leading them during, shall we say, normal times, times when you're, yeah, trying to improve, trying to come out with a few new products, you know, trying to maybe come out with a new ad campaign, always looking to improve your business. But, you know, during this five-year period, let's say, your business is going to be, you know, kind of similar. I mean, there are a lot of businesses that if you looked at what they were doing, what they were selling, how they were selling it in 1980, and then looked again in 1990, it was pretty much the same, you know, again, maybe a new ad, ad, ad jingle or whatever else. Um, and then all of a sudden, the digital transformation started to occur, and people needed to really be operating in a very different way. So when you're trying to drive that kind of substantial transformation, you have a much greater challenge as a leader. And that's for a number of different reasons, and I talk about many of these reasons in the book. But one of them is resistance to change. Because no matter how essential it is for an organization to change in order to survive, to not become the next Toys R Us, to not become the next Circuit City, uh, etc., is there's a natural sort of human resistance to change of a large scale. So when you go to your organization and say, we're going to be shifting away from our call centers to chatbots, or we're going to be asking customers to do much more on a self-service basis, or we're going to be rethinking our store strategy, perhaps closing some of our larger stores, opening smaller stores, we're not going to be delivering, we're going to be asking, we're going to be changing around substantial things about how we operate. To a lot of people in the organization, that sounds like a big pain in the neck. They've already learned how to do things. They already have a sense of comfort and safety and security. And now, you know, if, if you're the person who runs the mainframe system at a company and they're going to transform your technology to move to a completely different technology that doesn't use the skills that you've already learned, if you're a salesperson that's used to selling a certain product and now you have to sell a completely digital product, well, you know, Denise, it's like you were talking about at the beginning of our time together. It's like, oh, now I've got to learn something new. This is totally different. Now I, I feel less confident, right, because I knew how to do everything, and now you're putting me back to a place where I have to learn in order to be able to do my job. And so there's plenty of people for whom that doesn't sound so great. And what does it mean when it doesn't sound so great? Well, it can mean everything from just low morale to people who actively try to sabotage these types of transfer, transformations. And we see often, especially when people are 
senior executives who may perceive that some kind of transformation might not be good for them in the organization politically. You know, if they're, if they're the person who's in charge of the call center or the mainframe or whatever, and that's going to be minimized in a post-transformation world, uh, then that's not maybe feeling like it's something that's good for them. And if they can figure out how to slow it down or to, you know, put a monkey wrench in, not everybody would, of course, take that approach, but it's not uncommon. And so th- those types of leaders really have to figure out how to, how to do something which kind of goes against the psychology in many ways of the people in their organization, how to, get, how to inspire people for change, which might not normally seem exciting to them, how to even make sure they empathize with the fact that the leader might be excited about the change, but it may not have the same immediate um, desirability to their, their members of their organization. So that process is the last thing, because when you get that right, when you get the organization really excited behind the change and you get everyone in the organization pushing in the same direction, then you can do amazing things in a short period of time. But when the organization is fighting itself because there's some people trying to push change and there's other people who overtly or so covertly are trying to hold things back, then you have to work five times as hard to make the change because you're not only having to push the organization's change, but you're having to pull everyone along with you. So those are the five areas, understanding the customer, mapping the vision and the journey, building the future, and then while you're doing that, uh, optimizing the present and leading the change. And in the book, each of those is a whole series of chapters we go into some depth, plus there's supplemental videos and other external materials, templates and things like that to really help you go through the, the, the rigorous work of blueprinting and mapping out how you make that kind of transformation and how you execute it. And I love this, and I love what you're talking about. And I have to go back to Windows 10 and 11. Listen, I'm a nerd in stilettos. I am. I am a nerd, big time. But what I finally realized a couple of days ago, it's like I'm actually excited about learning it, but time. Time is a factor. Mm -hmm. And right now, I am up to my eyeballs and alligators. So that's my big excuse. I don't want to do that, and I get really whiny about it. Then I have to take myself out, put myself in the corner, and have a chat with myself. You're going to learn this. You're going to master it. And I already am beginning to. But then I stop and, you know, have clutch my stomach. I don't have time. I've got to do this. And then I have to have that talk again. But it has to be done. And I have to get very excited about it, which I'm getting. I'm getting there, finally. Good. And, and, and truth is, we tend to find the time for the things we're excited about. And exactly. And feel like there's not enough time. I just don't have time to make it to the dentist, you know. So uh, when, when trying to inspire groups of people, very often you'll get excuses. Oh, the systems won't do this. The teams don't have enough time, this, that, the other thing. It's not that those things aren't true, but a lot of times there's an underlying issue, which is they're not motivated to overcome those problems. So those kinds of excuses become the pretense. Again, it's not that there's no, no truth or validity to them, but you wouldn't be hearing the excuses. You'd be here, oh, we figured out where to get the time from. We figured out how to get it done if they were excited about doing it. And I suspect the same would be true of you if you were truly excited about moving to Windows 11? Well, I don't have any options. But now that I'm starting to poke around in it and right. taking the time <laughs> and, you know, finding YouTube videos and other people saying, right. oh, here's some shortcuts. I'm like, oh, I can do that. Right. So then my, my techie nerd is kicking in and going, oh, come yeah. on, you got well, it. Quit whining about it. Right, right. Well, as you get into it, you're getting, it's kind of like when you say, oh, I don't want to go to the gym, and then you get start, and then you finally make it, and then once you're there, you feel good. But telling employees, and I'm just using your situation as an analogy, telling employees that they don't have any options is not inspiring. <laughs> it sounds horrible. You want them to feel like 
they, they, should, they want to do this, whether it's an option or not. And, and that's the goal of transformational leadership. But it's hard. It, yeah, and that's what happened to me. I went from my old computer to my new computer, which I had no options. And I think, honestly, you just pointed out the problem. Look, I, I'm one of those people, I argue with my nav system. My nav system. She's not the boss of me. And I think that's what happened. My my choices were taken away, and I was not happy. So I think you yeah. just diagnosed my problem. Howard, right. we are out of time. And thank you. I mean, I really appreciate you spending this much time with me. Do you have anything else you want to share with the audience before I let you go? Um, no, only thank you for listening. And if you're interested in the book, you can find it you know, on Amazon and Barnes & Nobles and the usual places you find a book. It's called, again, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. There's also a website for the book. I think you've linked it on the page for this broadcast, which you can get to at winningdigitalcustomers.com. I'd also encourage people to follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of stuff there, commentary, free white papers, infographics, videos, other things. Um, you can just look me up on LinkedIn under my last name, Tiersky, T-I-E-R-S-K-Y. Thank you. I, I love the book. I mean, seriously, you ought to see it. It's got sticky notes all over it. It's gotten a little bit fat. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm send me a picture of that, gonna... Denise. I'd love to see that. I'll, I'll share that I out will. on social media and say, here's Denise's copy. And I'm, if you've bought this book, is it covered in post-it <laughs> notes? Because if not, maybe you're not using it the way you should. You're supposed to sticky note it and get a yellow pen yeah. and you know, do all of these things. And I'll write a review for it on Amazon. I'm just oh, about you. through with it. I've got a couple places I want to go back and say, did I read that right? Did I understand that? You know, because this happens. I mean, you'll be you know, kind of skating through it and going, okay, I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back. Okay, now it's time to go back. And that's where I am with it right now. So, Howard, thank you so much for being here with me. It's been wonderful. My pleasure. You and I really appreciate you coming in on the holiday. I really appreciate that. So thank you for all of the terrific tips and advice that you've shared. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Amazon, Audible, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting your partner in success radio. So look for us, find us, and take us along on your success journey. Howard, again, thank you, and have a terrific holiday. You too. Thanks so much. Enjoy. I will.